This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. This podcast was recorded on the 1st of March 2017 at the event entitled All at Sea, Comparative Perspectives on Turning Back Boats. This event was hosted by the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW and Macquarie University. All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, we'll make a start, I think. Uh, I know there'll probably still be a few people coming in. Uh, but good evening, my name is Natalie Klein. I'm the Dean of Macquarie Law School, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here for this event organised with the Andrew and Renata Calder Centre for International Refugee Law. Uh, in welcoming you here this evening, I'd like to uh, acknowledge the Gadigal people um, whose lands we're meeting and to pay my respects to their elders past and present and also extend that respect to any Indigenous people who are here this evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to moderate this evening's discussions. It does seem to me that for all that talk of globalisation and uh, a borderless world, once we start talking about migration, it never seems more obvious that uh, borders are extraordinarily real and moving people across them is an extraordinarily contentious issue. So in looking at this issue this evening, we're focusing particularly on the um, practice that has developed amongst various countries around turning back the boats. And uh, we'll be examining that from a comparative perspective and also bringing in international law dimensions. So I'm extraordinarily pleased that we have uh, the opportunity to welcome um, diverse colleagues here with, who have a wealth of expertise on this issue. Uh, so first of all, Francis Boone, who is the Executive Director at the Caldor Centre. Um, my colleague from Macquarie Law School, Daniel Gazelbash. Uh, the full title, Rear Admiral James Goldrick, uh, retired from the RAND now, and also a uh, pleasure to welcome um, Dr. Violetta Moreno-Lax as well, currently a visiting fellow at Macquarie, but normally at Queen Mary uh, University in London. Now, uh, in terms of how we're going to conduct the proceedings, uh, mostly we're going to try and keep it as a fairly fluid discussion uh, between each of the panellists rather than formal presentations. Um, I will be looking at my watch. It's not to indicate that I have somewhere else to be, but rather to ensure that we can actually move the discussion along because I'm also very keen to ensure uh, that there is time at the end for you to be able to ask questions of each of our panellists as well. Uh, so to get straight into it, I'd actually like to ask Frances, first of all, if she could perhaps provide our general backdrop, the situation that we're dealing with first up. So. Thanks very much, Natalie. Um, well, of course, the movement of people by sea is a, an issue that's galvanised attention uh, around the world of governments, of media, of publics, um, and that is um, not only here, but all around the world. Uh, so it's valuable for us to put this uh, phenomenon into some kind of context, um, and that's why uh, we, together with Macquarie Law, wanted to hold this panel looking at comparative perspectives so that we could uh, basically see what is happening in different regions and also put it within the, uh, the context of a discussion about international law. Um, what can be said is that uh, we, are, we need to see this phenomenon within a context of um, 
high numbers of people on the move all around the world. At the moment, uh, the International Organisation for Migration estimates that there are one billion people on the move, uh, of which 250 million are international migrants. So that's the highest number of people on the move on record. And at the same time, as we all know, we're also seeing record numbers of displacement, people forced to move. Uh, over 65 million people displaced globally, of which uh, over 21 million are displaced across an international border uh, and are refugees. So irregular maritime movements need to be seen uh, as taking place against this overall backdrop of increasing and increasingly complex movements of people. In terms of the overall volume of people who are moving in this way, it's extremely difficult for us to quantify that. And that's because while we have reasonable data about movements to industrialised countries, uh, especially on highly visible routes such as the Mediterranean, the Caribbean and so on, there's very little good data about other maritime movements. Um, but also the data tends to capture interdictions rather than all attempts at maritime movement as well. So, as an example, um, the International Organisation for Migration has what's called the Missing Migrants Project, which records the number of dead and missing migrants around the world. In 2016, they recorded around 7,500 migrants dead or missing on migratory routes around the globe, and close to half of these were deaths in the Mediterranean. But of course, we know that uh, this doesn't capture the scope of people who attempt to move and of course uh, there are likely to be many people dead and missing that are not recorded. Um, despite this, what we can say is that um, people who are moving by sea are a small proportion of the overall number of people on the move in the world at the moment and a small proportion of the world's displaced. Uh, but it is worth noting that um, people from refugee producing countries do represent a significant a proportion of the recorded uh, number of people who are uh, arriving by sea. Um, and so we can say that flight by sea is linked to uh, some of the drivers of forced movement as well as uh, more likely other drivers of movement as well. Um, it's linked to the increasing uh, securitization of migration and increasing uh, imposition of border controls so that lawful um, passages are increasingly difficult for people to move through. Um, and, uh, and in this sense, um, it is very linked to questions around protection of people who are in search of safety. Uh, and we think it's important for us to focus on this despite the fact that it's a relatively small number of people in a larger uh, phenomenon of movement, partly because of the outsized role that it plays in our public debate here and elsewhere, uh, but also because of the significant questions and risks that it involves relating to people's safety and their needs for protection. Thanks, Francis. I mean, certainly in dealing with this issue, as you said, it's just one small part of, of a much larger phenomenon. And from the international law perspective, what has been really interesting is the way that we have a lot of different international laws that apply and there's difficulties in determining how those particular bodies of law apply in any one context. So 
in terms of what we're talking about, we need to be aware of the law of the sea that tends to cast this more as a law enforcement issue dealing with people smuggling. And so we have all the issues relating to law of the sea in the particular maritime zone, so I know James will come back to. We also need to think about our obligations in terms of the Search and Rescue Convention, which has been a key focus that Dan has been looking at, as well as Violetta. And obligations around search and rescue when there is a vessel in distress, an obligation to take people to a place of safety. And questions around, well, what is a place of safety? How do we decide when a vessel is in distress? At what point does it cross that particular threshold? So we could be involved in a search and rescue operation or are we involved in a law enforcement operation? And then also layered in there, which we'll need to consider, uh, obligations that fall under the Refugee Convention and how are we going to be treating asylum seekers. When we're talking about turning back the boats, we even have this very question as to whether the Refugee Convention applies at sea, in all different areas of the sea. It remains a controversial point. And then we layer in, of course, international human rights law, and, and Violetta will be able to talk about the European approach, which has been able to draw on a number of different instruments, and at what point a variety of human rights obligations kick in when we're dealing with this particular situation, and thinking about, well, at what point does someone have effective control over a vessel, and that that provides the obligation to therefore follow through on human rights obligations. But how do we balance that against our need to potentially take someone to a place of safety versus how do we deal with that as a law enforcement operation against people smuggling? So we've got some really big, complex uh, legal questions that come out. But what we thought we would do to try and take that framework and try and consider how it's being applied is to go through some policies in the different jurisdictions. So if we look at Australia first, and, and Francis, if you want to give the, the overview, and then we'll turn to James for that operational perspective. So over to you. Sure. I, I will only briefly give an outline of uh, what our current policy is and how we got here. So the interdiction of boats um, of carrying people moving irregularly to Australia was first instituted by the Howard government uh, as part of the Pacific Solution following the Tampa affair in, in 2001. And at that time, what was called Operation Relics involved uh, the Royal Australian Navy intercepting and boarding what we call suspected illegal entry vessels, or SIVs, which um, is an acronym we have seen many times in the media. Um, and initially, the Navy sought to effect this through issuing warning notices. When that didn't prove to be very effective, um, it moved to a practice of active return, which was um, steering or towing boats to the edge of Indonesia's waters. Uh, and the line was that that was done where it was safe to do so. Uh, I think we'll probably have a chance to talk about the merits or, or otherwise of that particular policy um, in the course of our discussion, so I won't go into that. Uh, but we did then in 2007 have a change of government. Um, the Labor government uh, ceased the practice of actively turning back boats. It did continue um, a practice of issuing warnings uh, up to a certain point. Um, and, and that then ceased after um, a very um, public incident involving um, the loss of, of a number of lives. Uh, we then, of course, um, had the election of the Abbott government in 2013, 
on uh, a campaign platform that strongly focused on stopping the boats and within a fortnight of their election in September 2013 uh, we had the introduction of Operation Sovereign Borders. And Australia's current policy of turning back the boats is a central pillar of Operation Sovereign Borders. Um, it's described by the government as a military-led border security operation which is supported and assisted by a range of federal government agencies and the aim of the policy is, again in the government's words, to combat maritime people smuggling, prevent loss of life at sea and protect Australia's borders. So it's coordinated by a joint agency task force which is led by a high-ranking military officer and as of February that's Air Vice Marshal Stephen Osborne who reports to the Minister for Immigration and I think it's useful to know that that joint agency task force is supported by three operational task groups. One is focused on disruption and deterrence, and that is led by the Australian Federal Police. One is focused on offshore detention and returns, and that is led by the Department of Immigration. And one is detection, interception and transfer, and that is led by the Australian Border Force, and it includes the Maritime Border Command. So many of the things that we'll be talking about today are, are led by those agencies. So Operation Sovereign Borders includes this policy of turning back boats. It also includes a number of activities that are undertaken to uh, hinder irregular migration uh, in source countries, and those are things like communication campaigns, uh, training of border officials and so on, and it also includes the policy of offshore processing. And what we know is that uh, so far, since September 2013, under this policy, 29 boats involving 740 individuals have been turned back, the majority of them to Indonesia, but also a number to Sri Lanka and Vietnam. And the government distinguishes between a turn back and a take back. So a turn back is where a vessel is removed uh, from Australian waters and return to just outside the territorial waters of the country of departure, which is usually Indonesia. And a take back uh, is where Australia works cooperatively with the country of departure to effect that return. Uh, and there is an at-sea transfer of the people from uh, one sovereign country to another. And those are, um, have taken place with respect to sh returns to Sri Lanka and Vietnam. Um, the other thing just to flag at this point is that a notable element of the policy is, um, is of not releasing information about operational matters. So what we do know about how that policy operates is limited. But um, we're fortunate to have James uh, with us to talk a bit about um, how these operations do work. So I'll Thank you. Um, what I would first say is a caveat is that it's nine years since I was able to escape uh, being the Border Protection Commander uh, for somewhat more peaceful activities um, and also some years since I've retired. So uh, I have no access to privileged information, particularly since the uh, start of Operation Sovereign Borders, uh, but I can um, make some judgments and some assessments as to uh, um, how things are likely to be working and what the issues are. Now what I'd like to do, in fact I'm going to flip through quite fast, I'm putting that up for a very good reason. I'll have to tell you that Australians who live in cities have a European idea of distance. We are a very big country. 
You have to understand that. Most Australians who live in cities don't. I'm going to get up and walk around a bit. I just want to make the point, it's 1,500 nautical miles from Darwin to Christmas Island. That's nearly 3,000 kilometres. It is 1,400 nautical miles from Perth to Christmas Island. It's something over 500 from Broome to Christmas Island. What does that mean? Well, we have something over in both naval and custom and border for service, something over 20 patrol boats with about three or four bigger ships generally allocated to the sort of work. That means that you have this problem about on task just for a start. It takes you four days to get a ship from Darwin to Christmas Island. It takes you nearly four days to get from Perth to Christmas Island. Aircraft, of which there are limited numbers, it's the same problem. It takes you several hours. And of course, I've, I've mentioned the number just over 20 and 3 and 4. In fact, it's not that. Your numbers get down, roughly speaking, to 5 or 6, maybe 7 or 8, with one or two big ships. And that's all you can sustain, because the ships have a limited time. They can be out there. Their crews can be out there for a limited time, and so on. If you want to have a permanent presence, Think about one in three, roughly speaking. And even that is quite a strain on the people. So how does that work out in material terms? In the last year, before the implementation of Operation Sovereign Borders, about 20,000 people arrived by sea. The average size at that point, the average number of people per boat, I believe, was about 69 in each boat. 20,000? There's 400 people a week, but we'll get onto the weather in a minute. That gives you five to six to seven boats a week, if all's going well, if none of them have problems, if none of them divert you for search and rescue. So there is a physical problem. What I can tell you from an outsider's perspective is I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that the system was reaching a point of extreme stress before Operation Sovereign Borders in its physical ability to deal with the numbers. And that our actual ability to surge further and sustain the further surge was actually quite limited. That's a personal view. Just to remind you um, of some of the context and the things that are really important when you're talking about this sort of problem are the territorial sea, and the contiguous zone. Territorial sea is sovereign territory, basically. The contiguous zone, the nation state has the right to enforce law, particularly in terms of uh, immigration and in other areas. And those only go 12 and then 24 miles out. Outside those, although you have the exclusive economic zone and the continental shelf, in immigration terms, in people movement terms, you're actually in international waters. Another point about people's ideas and attitudes. Everybody has seen too many James Bond movies. <laughs> MH370 gave us some understanding. There is no all-seeing eye. 
Does anybody know how far a geosynchronous, you know, satellite that is going to sit above us all the time is from us? How high it is? Anybody give me a height? Very. 50,000 kilometres apart? 35,000 kilometres, in fact, just something over. Okay. Now, yes, optics are rapidly developing and the rest of it, but if you want a satellite that's going to give you that James Bond picture, with you being able to identify that person on that boat, that satellite is basically overhead for a matter of a few minutes and it probably can return once more in 24 hours. With a diff and it only can return because it can actually see a swathe. This shows the monsoon season. It shows you the cloud cover. Most detection devices in the modern world actually rely upon a target either deliberately emitting a beacon signal, as in the automatic identification system, or emitting electronically such that there are devices which can track it. As MH370 showed, once a target becomes what's called non-cooperative, it can be incredibly difficult to track. A small wooden boat is not something that is actually easy for many sensors to pick up. Even radar on an aircraft in the wrong conditions, you can be down to a few miles in terms of actually detecting it. What I want to really make the point is there's no all-seeing eye. You can achieve a probability of detection, but you cannot achieve a certainty of detection all the time. And it actually doesn't matter how many assets you have, you can't do it. So that sort of ship may well be spotted at 30 to 40 miles by a maritime patrol aircraft in the right conditions with the right radar. As I said earlier, it might not get spotted at all. It might get spotted at five miles or seven miles. It might get missed by a ship. There is no all-seeing eye. And as I say, the issue of distance creates an issue of capacity. And a personal view, in 2013, the Navy and the Border Force were at the limit. And that's not even starting to talk about the stress on personnel, about the number of deaths that were taking place at sea, and how they're having to deal with them. Physically, those numbers were starting to become overwhelming. Had they increased much more, I'm not sure what would have happened. Thank you. Turning then for a perspective from the US, Dan. Thanks, Natalie. Uh, I think one of the reasons it's important to pay attention uh, to, I guess, the history and the development of this, the interdiction policy in the US is that uh, it's acted as sort of the blueprint that uh, other countries have since followed. Uh, so the US has been interdicting uh, boats in a systematic way since uh, 1981, uh, initially targeting Haitian uh, Haitian arrivals and then expanding the program to um, Cuban boat arrivals in the mid-90s. Uh, and uh, these two countries still uh, constitute the bulk of interdictions that the US car carries out today. Uh, and the numbers have sort of fluctuated over the years. I think it peaked at about uh, 95,000 arrivals in 1994. Uh, and it's been pretty steady at about three or 4,000 um, interdictions a year. Uh, mostly Cuban, with a few with about five to six hundred uh, Haitians a year in the last sort of ten years. Uh, 
I went to get you the exact figures uh, today, but the U.S. Coast Guard has taken down the statistics since the election of Donald Trump. I don't know if that's um, them taking a book out of the Australian playbook, uh, taking a note out of Australia's playbook of not discussing onboard matters. Uh, but uh, yeah, I had the I had the details up to 2015 um, on record on file myself. Uh, so while the sort of policy of interdicting has uh, has continued you know, for 30, 35 years, what they do with uh, asylum seekers and migrants once they're intercepted has, has changed over the years. And uh, I'll give you a, a quick historical overview, uh, mainly for the reason uh, that you see that uh, both Australia and as we'll see with Violetta have sort of taken all these various options the US has used in the, in the past as kind of an a la carte menu and they've sort of mixed and matched uh, various options uh, to, suit their to suit their needs. Uh, at any given point in time. So at, at first, for the first uh, dec decade or so, uh, there were screening interviews carried out at sea, and those found to be uh, past the initial threshold of having a, a credible fear of persecution were taken to the US mainland for uh, full status determination procedures. Uh, and then we had a move in the early 90s uh, to offshore processing. So they established a migrant processing camp uh, at Guantanamo Bay. And I know today we know it more uh, because of uh, its use to house enemy combatants. Uh, but it was used to house asylum seekers for the same reason that it, that it was used to house enemy, house enemy combatants. And that is, uh, it purports to be outside the reach of the regular protections that apply um, under US municipal law. Uh, and uh, there was another switch uh, a few years later. In 1992, uh, George Bush Sr. Uh, issued an order under which uh, no status determination procedures were to be carried out at all. And uh, all uh, Haitian asylum seekers intercepted at sea uh, were returned to Haiti. And uh, this, was, this policy was upheld by the, the US Supreme Court uh, in the case of uh, sale and uh, Haitian, uh, the Haitian um, Centers, uh, name escapes me now. Yeah, Haitian Centers Council. And basically upholding the view of the US government that the non reform obligations uh, do not apply extraterritorially. And uh, this is a very controversial point, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to uh, discuss it and debate it further on this panel today. Uh, and then we see a resumption of processing and various different incarnations of offshore processing and third country processing. So it's a brief policy of processing asylum seekers in uh, aboard uh, Navy vessels in uh, Trinidad and uh, sorry, Jamaica and the Turks and Caicos Islands. Uh, and then there was this safe haven option for a while where there was no processing going on, but they were just holding people in Guantanamo Bay, waiting for conditions to change in Haiti and Cuba to send them back. Uh, there were safe haven camps set up in Panama. Uh, and then by 1995, we get the current policy that continues to this day. And again, you see there's very clear parallels to what we're doing um, in Australia now. Uh, so boats are intercepted at sea. There's summary, summary um, status determination procedures, so interviews about um, whether the person has an asylum claim. Although they're not automatic, uh, it varies depending on the country of nationality. Cubans get automatic interviews. For anyone else, uh, the, what some have referred to as the shout and get a hearing test. So you have to basically shout up and say, you can't send me back, and then you can get an interview. 
Uh, and those found to have uh, a fear of being returned to their home countries are sent to Guantanamo Bay for processing. And uh, importantly, as with our offshore processing system here, uh, they never get resettled in the US, but they if found to be refugees on Guantanamo Bay, they have to wait uh, until a third country finds to resettle them. It's just getting more cheerful as we go along. Let's turn to Europe <laughs> then. It's not going to be cheerful. <laughs> no, I know. If you don't mind, I'll stand up as well. Um, I do have some visual aids. Um, okay. So I do have a couple of points. I'm going to be covering two for the time being. So the uh, facts and figures, just to put things into perspective of what the situation is in the European Union. And I'll quickly flick through the European response, and then the substantive bits will be for later on. Um, so what we have called in Europe the migration crisis started in 2015 with the drowning of 700 people at sea in two incidents that were recorded next to Lampedusa. That's an island of um, close to Sicily, so belonging to Italy. Uh, there, there were 700 people at once losing their lives, and that sort of adds up to the number of 30,000 people dying since the records exist, from 1992 up to 2016. And that number accounts for 700 of the global rate. So the Missing Migrants Project that Francis was mentioning before uh, puts together what it's called black numbers. Because I mean, per definition, irregular entries into countries are not recorded. We don't know when and how and, and, and whether people actually make it. And so the only numbers that we have are of those people who actually lose their life at sea and who get media attention or are detected by their family members who record them as missing. Um, and just to put things into perspective, if you remember from the Bosnian War, uh, Milosevic, the Milosevic regime was actually put to the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice. There was a judgment condemning the regime for the genocide of 8,000 people, and that sort of has to be put in contrast with it. Nearly 30,000 are losing their lives in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean groups, unlike what happens in, in Australia, it's well known, it's very well surveyed. There is a multi-billion facility called Eurosor, uh, which I don't know if it gives you the James Bond 100% uh, vision of what is happening, <laughs> but it does reach to the other side of the coast. So we do know when boats are getting ready. It reaches out to Morocco, for example. The distance between Morocco and the Spanish coast is only 11 kilometers. So you do not need the type of facilities that you would need to deploy in Australia to get the vision of what is going on. So the route has been taken by people escaping the Albanian regime in the 90s, and it's always been used up to this day. Um, it's now become predominantly an asylum route. It's actually being taken by nationalities of the top 10 refugee producing countries that get recognized as refugees once they make it to Europe, to the other side. And what control and border management has done is simply it's helped shifting the flows towards more dangerous routes, typically. 
So I have a couple of uh, graphs to sort of depict this that we're discussing. This is Pope Francis looking at what he named the Vergogna numbers, the numbers of shame. Uh, there's been numbers being recorded for the last three years, the duration of the total crisis in the Mediterranean. And although Europe is constantly increasing investments in border capacity and migration management at sea, we do not see real improvement. So if you see there are peaks in debt that happened in the second year of the crisis, when we already knew what was going on and we knew the volume and type and composition of the flows. These are the nationalities. So when politicians in Europe claim that this is a migrant or migration-related crisis, the numbers deny them because we do know that from the majority of national, I mean, of those involved and their nationality, they are coming from countries which are war-torn or where people are escaping persecution. So the first nationality are Syrians, second Afghanis, coming uh, predominantly from the Middle East route towards Greece and the Greek islands. And we also have people coming from, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm so, sorry that it cuts there, but uh, those are um, Eritreans, the second column. Those are reaching the Sicilian coasts, Lampedusa and Italy. And so those are actually the key three nationalities, three, four or five nationalities of those which, if they reach Europe, get 90% chances of being recognized as refugees. So this is not really such a mixed flow, and it's not certainly a migration, economic migration-related um, outflow. These are the changes in the routes that, that migrants and refugees have been taken when entertaining um, these sort of voyages. The journeys have been shifting as controls have plucked one gap and moved to the next. So in the early 90s, the, the, the flow was concentrated in the, shorted, the shortest bit of um, sea, which was the Strait of Gibraltar. That was very easily plucked through uh, a bilateral agreement between the Spanish government and Morocco. Then the flows moved to the Canary Islands that route was also closed. And then what we see today is an increasing flow through the central Mediterranean and the eastern Mediterranean, through Turkey for the Syrians and via Libya for Eritreans and other nationalities. But this to say that actually control doesn't mean life-saving or the, you know, the conclusion of the migratory movements. It just displaces routes towards typically more dangerous areas. What has been the European response? Well, instead of being a humanitarian-based uh, action, they focused predominantly in increasing border capacity and border security. So there's been three key instruments, three key documents that were issued in the height of the crisis. The EU agenda on migration, the plan against smuggling, and a sort of partnership framework with African and Middle East partners to block the flows from the countries and regions of origin. There's been three key um, actions that these three documents have translated into. 
one civil um, maritime operation, another military operation this time, the UNAFOR met Sofia, and a bilateral deal concluded with Erdogan uh, very recently, March 16. So just to go <laughs> briefly through each one of the, of the operations, I'm not going to be say what it's on the screen, I mean you can read that out. Uh, just the key bits that I wanted to underline here are that Triton Plus is an operation that existed already from 2010. It was first launched to help the Italians control their border uh, in the Sicilian coast and it got buffed up, beefed up, sorry, in 2015 after the European Agenda on Migration was adopted. The budget was tripled and the operational zone was increased. And you see, so from the blue line up to the red line, that's the increase in, 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 in the area that they were patrolling after the, the, the plus was added to the Triton. Uh, interdiction is the primary tool that they are employing, so when boats are detected, they interdict them. They don't say anymore, so we don't know ex exactly what is the end result of those interdictions. Documents say that the people are interdicted. There is no specific search and rescue mandate. We do know that people are being picked up, but there is no proactive going out at sea to search for those who might be in danger of drowning. This is another operation that sort of um, buttresses the action undertaken by Triton. So you do have a combination of the two operations. Triton is the civil operation which is sort of behind the military assets. The military assets are supposedly blockading movements from Libya towards the Italian shores. And their mission is actually to divert boats, capture them, and dispose of them, hopefully before use. And this is a quote from actually the UN Security Council resolution which accepted or approved the mandate that the European Union wanted to give to this operation. And I'm going to go into further detail later on. Um, there's been warning coming from different non-suspicious bodies, not least the EU defence chiefs, saying that this operation is only going to disrupt the flows, is going to create further danger at sea, and maybe further destabilise Libya and the region. Uh, the Frontex heads of the Triton mission also said that this is actually going to be the likely result. And we've so far seen that people have been taking the Turkish route rather than being confronted to the military assets of the uniform med. So my final slide so far, um, this is the EU-Turkey deal which was taken over a period of months and culminated in the adoption in March of a statement published as a press release, supposedly not creating reciprocal obligations, it's not a treaty, nonetheless it's being <coughs> treated as if it were a treaty. So there are exchanges for the mutual benefit of the two parties. What Turkey gets is 6 billion euro to deal with the refugee movements through and in Turkey. The EU accession talks being reactivated and in the whole process it's successful in stopping the migrant flow then they will get visa liberalisation for the EU Turkish uh, for the Turkish citizens into the European Union. Europe, on the other hand, gets readmission or, in Australian terms, take backs directly 
to Turkey of everyone, all irregular migrants are concerned, so there is no exception for Syrians or other nationalities, cooperation in anti-smuggling efforts, meaning the Turkish Coast Guard is actually being instructed to pull people back and take them to shore in Turkey. So there is some form of preemptive refoulement being undertaken on behalf of the European Union by the Turkish assets. And finally, um, the EU has promised that they would take 20,000 refugees for resettlement from Turkey. Bearing in mind that Turkey, the latest, according to the latest figures of UNHCR, is currently hosting 3 million Syrian refugees, leaving aside other nationalities. So this quid pro quo thing, um, it's not really working very well. The refugees are caught in between, and they only get coercion from both sides. So happy days. I'd like to make a side note before we move on. For, for an Australian audience, you might, this, some of this might be a bit familiar, because we had a very similar arrangement um, with Malaysia, for the Malaysian solution, where, um, which uh, we undertook to do pretty much exactly the same thing, send back asylum seekers, take people through the um, orderly resettlement program. All right, well, we've gotten quite uh, a good perspectives on the different approaches being followed by the countries we've been hearing about. Interdictions, the Security Council involvement, the importance of maritime zones, the importance of going, stop and listen to me, which triggers various areas of law. So it seems worth digging in a little further in terms of how compliant are these different policies with those international law parameters. So Francis, did you want to start in terms of the Australian approach? Sure. Well, I mean, as Natalie mentioned at the beginning, there are a range of different bodies of law that are relevant to uh, the practice of turnbacks. Um, in relation to the law of the sea, uh, what a country is um, able to do depends very much on location, so whether or not it occurs within um, you know, your contiguous zone or beyond, etc. Um, so it's very difficult, essentially, to say whether or not Australia is complying with its uh, obligations under the law of the sea because we really don't have um, information about the precise location of many turnback uh, um, incidents. Uh, we get uh, the level of detail we get is uh, things like northwest of Christmas Island. So, you know, how far northwest, we don't know exactly. Um, so, difficult to say um, whether we're complying with our obligations in that respect. Uh, but, uh, so, I'll focus on um, our compliance with our international refugee law and human rights obligations. And there, of course, the key obligation is that of non-reformal that uh, once we uh, intercept a, a vessel, we are under an obligation not to return people to countries where they face a risk of serious harm or persecution. Um, and essentially, there is a very strong risk that Australia is breaching this non-refoulement obligation in the course of our turnback operations. Um, and that turns on the question of whether or not in a turnback operation people have an opportunity to express a need for international protection and then thereafter to access a fair and transparent refugee status determination process. Now, what we know about what happens on boats, as I say, is, is very limited. Um, the, um, the Caldor Centre is undertaking a research project that we're calling the Turnback Tracker, where we're compiling uh, as much information as we can find on the public record about what happens in the course of each turnback operation that has happened under, um, 
Operation Sovereign Borders. And there, um, even with all the information that we've been able to compile from government and media sources, we don't have a very clear picture of exactly what happens on board. But what we know is that in relation to takebacks to Sri Lanka and Vietnam, uh, there is a form of enhanced screening that takes place. And what it looks like is that in relation to turnbacks to um, Indonesia, there isn't any sort of systematic screening or opportunity to uh, raise a protection need. Um, and screening, just for clarity, should differ from a refugee status determination process. So it's just a profiling exercise to identify whether a person should be referred to a refugee status determination process. And UNHCR um, suggests that this really should not be a standard you know, procedure. It should be exceptional rather than routine. Um, and that it mustn't replace uh, RSD or turn into a sort of de facto RSD with limited procedural uh, guarantees. Um, that it needs to take place clearly in an environment where there is some kind of privacy uh, so that people feel like they can actually raise uh, the sorts of concerns that we're talking about, which are often, often involve very sensitive information. Um, and uh, clearly it also shouldn't take place where a person is in a physical or mental state where they can't engage with the process and they can't articulate that sort of claim. And you can imagine that often after people have taken lengthy and very difficult journeys, um, you know, that's difficult to guarantee. So there are some very significant practical obstacles to ensuring that screening that does take place at sea does um, comply with international um, obligations. And what we know about enhanced screening is uh, that it takes place at sea. There have been instances where it's taken place by teleconference and the media reports uh, that we've received around that suggested that uh, the line was very bad, that it took place in noisy conditions where people couldn't really hear very well what was being asked of them, um, that the line cut out numerous times in the course of those interviews. Um, and reportedly, at least in 2014, media reports suggested that that screening involved only four questions. Uh, which was name, country of origin, place of departure, and reasons for leaving. Now, we don't know whether that is still what happens, um, but since then we've had information uh, that from the government that um, some enhanced screening has taken place on board vessels, so that would involve Department of Immigration officials physically undertaking an interview. And the indication is that those interviews are taken between 40 minutes and two hours, um, that uh, interpreters are supposed to be provided, and that the assessments are made by people who are trained in refugee law. That's information that the government has given uh, in Senate estimates. However, um, interview, media interviews with people who have taken part in those processes suggest that um, that hasn't always necessarily been provided and that sometimes interviews have been shorter. Now it's difficult for us to know, again, exactly what has taken place. Uh, but what we can say is that uh, from our research, it seems that 260 people have been subjected to enhanced screening, which includes 43 children. And of those people, um, 
two people have been referred to uh, a refugee status determination process, so two out of 260, and of those, one um, opted uh, not to um, go on with that process because it was going to take place uh, offshore and opted to return with the rest of the passengers to Sri Lanka. So of the 260 people subjected to enhanced screening, one person has been referred to a refugee status determination process on Manus Island where uh, we, we know there are some concerns about the quality of the refugee status determination process. And all of this matters because we know that people have been returned to situations where there is a risk of harm. Um, in Indonesia, many people are detained, but if they're not detained, then uh, asylum seekers don't have the right to work. They're often living in extremely difficult conditions, and civil society there indicate to us that um, you know, some people are actually lining up to go into detention centres because they find it so difficult to survive on their own. Um, and in Sri Lanka, we certainly have reports that at least nine people who um, have been, who were returned by Australia in the course of a turn back operation, moved on to Nepal and were recognised by UNHCR as refugees. We also know that people who Australia has returned to Sri Lanka have been handed over directly to the Criminal Investigation Department, which um, human rights organisations have raised concerns about the practices, um, coercive practices that take place in detention and interrogation there. And in Vietnam, you might have seen uh, recent reports that people who've been returned to Vietnam, uh, despite giving written guarantees to the Australian government that no one would face any sort of retribution for illegally leaving the country, which is a crime in, in Vietnam, uh, a number of people have been arrested uh, and sentenced uh, for exactly that. And um, some who were released on bail have subsequently fled the country again and were intercepted in Indonesia and are now seeking asylum in Indonesia. So uh, the information that we have available to us suggests that Australia is um, returning people to uh, a risk of harm in violation of our uh, non-reform obligation. I suspect there's a number of parallels then with the situation in the US. And yes, I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have that much to add to that. I mean, it's a, the same uh, concerns apply to the uh, procedures carried out at, at sea uh, to screen for asylum claims in the, in the US case. Uh, and I guess there's a concern that uh, the one thing is that, firstly, the actual procedures are inadequate in their current form. Uh, but then there's a broader question of whether you could, whether you could ever have procedures that could uh, screen for claims in an, a fair and effective way um, at sea. And I think that's very difficult. And Francis already pointed out some of the, some of the impediments. You've got uh, fatigue. Uh, you've got lack of privacy. Uh, you have the, uh, the asylum seekers have no time to prepare their claims. Often uh, the, 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 the um, procedures aren't explained to them properly. Uh, and uh, I mean, that gives, a real, gives rise to a real risk of, of reformant. Uh, the um, I just want to touch very quickly on the um, the U.S. argument that uh, non-refoulement does, doesn't apply outside its territory, and uh, I think it, it, it they are increasingly uh, in the minority with this view. I, I don't think uh, uh, there is a lot of controversy anymore. I think everyone agrees that 
it, it, it does apply uh, extraterritorially in line with human rights law that, that uh, says that wherever you, you have effective control, uh, then your uh, obligations flow. Uh, and now, what I'm not sure about is Australia's position on this. We've been very silent. Um, and we can only de deduce from practice uh, what the Australian government says about this. But we've never, to my knowledge, uh, we haven't been advocating on the record that the non reform obligations don't, don't apply at, at sea. Am I, am I right about that, Francis? Do you know? Yeah. Okay. So, the letter then, in the European context, um, and considering that, you know, when we think about Europe, at least there is a European Convention on Human Rights that we know clearly applies in that situation. So, mm -hmm. um, how yeah. well are you? So do you have um, alignment here? I do, I do have a couple of slides again, uh, which I hope yeah, to take you through quickly. <laughs> so um, the theory says in Article 3.5 of the EU Treaty that EU, when engaging in external action, has to comply with international law, including respect and protection for human rights. International law should be broadly understood. It covers rules on the use of force, IHL, law of the sea, international human rights law, international refugee law, and this, um, the binding force coming from different sources. So the use of force coming from the UN Charter, IHL as a matter of customer international law, the law of the sea, because the EU itself as an organization has ratified UNCLOS, and then the Maritime Conventions, the Search and Rescue Convention, the Safety of Life at Sea Convention, because all of the Union uh, non-landlocked countries have ratified both conventions. And then all member states are party to the major human rights and international refugee law conventions and the European Union, besides there being in the European continent a European Convention on Human Rights, has its own Charter of Fundamental Rights. And for the maritime context, the Union has approved the application of all of this at sea in a recently adopted regulation, the ECBG, which is the European Border and Coast Guard Regulation of October 2016. <laughs> so this is the theory. What about the practice? Well, uh, in relation to the use of force, particularly the UNAFOMET operation, there, there is under international law no possibility for anyone to have recourse to military force beyond territorial dominion. And therefore, when the operation was about to be launched, there was a discussion as for whether you could have military assets positioned, having recourse to force, on the open sea and in Libyan territorial waters? The answer was no. You needed either Libyan consent for the territorial waters of Libya and UN Security Council resolutions to back up that action. And that came in the form of two resolutions of 2015, renewed recently in 2016. The only thing is that we wonder in Europe whether the European Union is sort of expanding <coughs> the remit of the text of those resolutions, which just grant power to intercept migrant boats, but only on the high seas, and provided that there is no undermining of human rights or no prevention and no prevention of protection seeking by those in need of asylum. This is 
not really happening. I mean, media and, and other sources have reported that this is actually the opposite of what should be happening. And beyond that, a more fundamental question has been going around as to whether migrant smuggling per se can be constituted as a threat to international peace and security, which is the basis for activation of char Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. Otherwise, it should be characterized as a law enforcement issue, and recourse to military power in an international setting would not be justified. Again, this is just a question. In relation to IHL, the basic principles underpinning the entire regime of distinction, proportionality, and precaution are applicable no matter what, anywhere where military action is being undertaken. So leaving to rest the matter of whether there is a basis for recourse to force and accepting that as a given, that would not be the end of the story. You will still have to comply with IHL. The principle of distinction requires that you distinguish between your targets, <coughs> so you can action your military force to target military objectives, but certainly not civilians, including boat refugees. Proportionality would require that even when you are targeting a military objective, you need to take precautions so that you spare the life and damage for civilians, something that, again, it's not very clear whether it's happening. And finally, the principle of precaution requires that in the planning of operations, the choice of, the choice of weapons, the choice of tactics, and so on, you avoid civilian casualties. By the numbers that I showed in previous slides, it's quite clear that there are being losses of human lives at sea, even in the presence of those com units composing the blockade of the uniformed. So whether there is compliance with these three basic principles, it's a matter of question, questioning and, and um, contestation. In relation to the law of the sea, I know that we've um, already touched upon this. So James has already um, alerted that you do have full jurisdiction when you're acting within your territorial sea, meaning 12 miles from the baseline. The contiguous zone will take you an extra 12 miles, and there you have full police powers, including interdiction, to control or to prevent uh, breaches of your immigration rules. But when you come to the high seas, your interdiction powers do not exist anymore, or at least it's not very clear whether the right of visit, which is the only thing that the UNCLOS uh, approves in Article 110, amounts actually to a power of interdiction. There is discussion, there is a, a contentious point, uh, but there are people saying that there can be an exception vis-a-vis -vis flatless vessels, which are typically those used by uh, refugee boats and migrant boats. What is quite clear is that in the territorial waters of a third country, you have no powers under the law of the sea unless this has been explicitly granted by the territorial sovereign, which is not the case with Libya. And there's been incidents, again, reported in the press of uniformed assets trespassing the limit of, the, of um, the open sea into the territorial waters of Libya. Libya, not having a border guard, um, has not taken any action yet but this doesn't really uh, deny the fact that maybe the European Union is actually overstretching their powers under the law of the sea. 
In terms of state obligations under the law of the sea, there are also a number of issues that we have to bear in mind that are actually European Union politicians, when putting together the Frontex mission, the Triton Plus mission, and the Uniform Met, appear to have forgotten. Uh, so flag states, whether uh, from states that do have territorial waters or are landlocked, so this includes all of the participants in the Frontex operations coming, for example, from Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and so on, have to obligate the masters of ships flying their flags to render assistance and proceed to the rescue of anyone in distress at sea. And that's a universal obligation binding on everyone, every flag state. Coastal states, so in, for our purposes, that would be Italy and Greece, on top of it have to provide for coastal watching and put up an operational search and rescue service and conduct proactive searches of those who might be in peril of drowning. And this is something that has not been taking place under the Frontex operation and the UNAFOR uh, operation. Why? Because there is no SAR mandate. So they are rescuing those whom are really you know, at arm's length, uh, but they are not conducting the patrolling of the waters to check whether people are actually in distress and in need of assistance. Uh, this contradicts amendments undertaken or introduced to the Saddam Solos Convention, which say that actually rescue amounts or concludes when people are effectively disembarked and delivered to a place of safety. So this has to happen, meaning that turn back doesn't amount to rescue. You have to deliver people to a place of safety, and that place of safety can only be on dry land once people have been disembarked. Before that point, rescue has not been completed. And that's not what is happening in Europe. Very quickly, uh, we've touched upon non-refoulement, but I just wanted to recap. There are other human rights that come to play. Uh, the right to leave any country, including one's own, and that includes Turkey and Libya, for our purposes. The right to seek asylum, which has binding codification in European law. So we have repeated uh, time and again that there is no right to asylum in international law. That's true. But within our regional context, in Europe, we do have a legally binding obligation to provide asylum, to allow for asylum to be exercised as an individual right. There is the right to life, the prohibition of ill-treatment, the prohibition of arbitrary detention, including confinement in boats, uh, a right to a fair trial if any of the other rights have been violated, and a right to effective remedies if the other rights have been uh, infringed. So, yeah, there should be real compliance with all of this, if only because the European Union has validated and codified all of these rights in the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the organization. The scope of application, Daniel has touched upon it, just very briefly. Uh, everyone is covered. Under EU law, there is no distinction on grounds of nationality as for who benefits from these basic protections. Materially, it doesn't really matter the, the division that operates in international <coughs> law between international human rights law and international refugee law. In Europe, the Charter puts everything under, under the same roof. And in relation to the territorial scope of application, there are two camps in the literature, and there is a bit of fighting as well in political terms. 
there are those who say whenever EU law applies, fundamental rights follow. So the Charter of Fundamental Rights has to be complied with. <coughs> Otherwise, there will be a vacuum. So you will have Frontex operating beyond the, 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 the territorial confines of Europe without any checks and balances in terms of fundamental rights. Others say, well, when EU law applies, the charter attaches to EU law and it has to be respected. The classic view that I think is uncontroverted in other regions of the world is that when states affect uh, jurisdiction, exercise jurisdiction in the form of the jure or de facto effective control, that's it. Human rights obligations follow and attach to action. And this is all the different authorities that back up and contradict the Australian de facto position and the US de jure position in the sale um, um, jurisprudence. OK, so if we went with those claiming that whenever EU law applies, fundamental rights follow, this would mean that contact, contactless refoulement would be covered and will still amount to refoulement and will still be forbidden under EU fundamental rights law. And yeah, that's the end. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Now, given that you touched on the international humanitarian law and use of force, I mean, James, do you think that these should be military operations, and what are the implications of giving okay. this military um, I'm actually somewhat uncomfortable by uh, some of the implications of considering things are military operations conducted as state, um, you know, state force. Um, navies are different to armies. They always have been. Navies have always done law enforcement. The only country where it doesn't happen, and please never ever use the United States as an example, is the United States Navy and the United States Coast Guard, both of which are military services, by the way. But the United States Navy has delegated what practically every other Navy does to the US Coast Guard. What, in fact, is happening in the maritime domain is arguably it's becoming more civilianized. Because something like the current border force capabilities did not exist 15 or 20 years ago. It was a naval job. Now, what's happened with the evolution of the law of the sea and the increasing complexity is that many of the challenges which navies have historically faced have become more and more complex, and we have new ones as well. Um, but we will. But navies do this as law enforcement. They may be military forces, but they're not doing it as military action. If they're doing it as military action in Europe, they're getting themselves into very deep water. It's a law enforcement role. Now, you can argue the legality, and it's a very complex thing. But it is being done as law enforcement. And navies are comfortable with that. Lord Nelson died owed 50 guineas by the Scottish government for doing fishery protection work 25 years before. Um, I've done fishery protection in three parts of the world. I've arrested British fishermen on loan to the Royal Navy. I've arrested Russians. It's law enforcement. What you do have to argue is, OK, is the law sufficient? Is it? Is it you know, is, is it appropriate? And, uh, and all, all of those involved with the operation would necessarily have um, taken that advice. And I'm, I'm not privy to the details, and I'm sure it's arguable. But we're different from armies. And I think one needs to be very careful about that use of the word military. It's what actually are they doing? They're going out there 
as law enforcement units. You may disagree with the law, but that's what they're doing. If they're in Europe, it sounds as though they've got themselves into areas where I would not have gone in the way that actually mandated things. They sound to me they have the worst of both worlds. Um, but I've, you know, I, I just want to make that very clear. And in fact, if I can switch back to mine, I just want to give you a conceptual, a conceptual basis that we operate on. Um, show you the conceptual basis we operate on because I think it's very important uh, to understand this. And the fact that you have a military officer as running the sovereign borders and coordinating the task forces is much more because the military officer and the military team are good at doing stuff really quickly. But the maritime border side works under the classic, what we call the, the triangle of maritime operations. And constabulary operations are historical and continuing naval work. What this shows is that there is increasingly a relationship with the civil side, which did not really exist 25 or 30 years ago. If we were doing anything offshore, it was the Navy. And basically, you go from the equivalent of a parking ticket down to peace enforcement, with the idea that the military <coughs> capability that we rest on it. But navies differ from armies. And it's really important to understand that. How the government decides where the resources are allocated is really where does, the, where does the best value for money go in terms of the job that needs to be done. And in some ways, you know, should we be putting more into the civil side? May well, we may well need to do that. But it's going to be a cooperative effort. And the great advantage also of having the Navy and Defence involved is we have an ability to surge in emergency, which only Defence has. But I just want to make the point we're not armies, and it's about law enforcement. Even if you disagree with the law and the basis for the law and what's being justified, it's a law enforcement role, constabulary. I'm conscious of the time and we've got uh, quite a few different issues on the table and it's interesting in terms of in thinking about law enforcement because that raises the question in terms of well where do we move from law enforcement into a search and rescue mission potentially and it's interesting comparing the EU dimension to the Australian where we've got a distinct contrast in terms of the transparency and accountability so you've got lots that you can dig into in the European context that we just can't do in a comparable manner in assessing Australia. Um, but let me hand over to you for some questions and uh, to put to any of our panellists or several of our panellists, if you wish. Um, so we have a microphone. If there's some questions, we might perhaps gather up two or three questions in one and then answer in one go. Sorry, just a question for Rear Admiral uh, James. You, you mentioned before that you might be in a position to speculate as to the current position of Operation Sovereign Borders. So wondering whether you could say anything because the rest of us might not know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand that's a, that's a question of speculation. Let me just gather yeah, sure, a few questions, a few. if that's all right. I think there was another question down towards the back. Uh, 
questions really for Francis, really. Um, people who are sent back to Indonesia, Vietnam, etc., um, are we, being the Australian government or other people, privy to their names and their details, which we could then follow up on what's happening with them? And one other point, James, this is involved, in, you were talking earlier about distance between the mainland and Christmas Island. I've just come back from Christmas Island and just out of interest, say, for everybody, it's about a four-hour flight. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, is there one question here? Francis, you've touched upon um, the issues with uh, processing claims in terms of uh, point of application versus when uh, an actual determination is made. And I've experienced that in my own practice in migration law, and I was just wondering about um, your view on the um, limitations in, the, um, in international law in terms of um, how those conflicts marry up with practical um, issues in terms of um, access to interpreters and um, also departmental um, resource limitations. Thank you. All right. James, to you. Um, I'm not quite sure about the speculation bit. Um, Francis made the comment, and indeed it was confirmed in Senate estimates on Monday night, that the last figure was for uh, 29 uh, with 740 uh, involved, and that in fact I don't think there have been any in the last six months. Uh, was yeah, not not not. Sorry, there was one. I think there's, there's there's been one in the last six months. So the ones one since the last Senate estimates. Uh, so, in fact, you know, the movement appears to have stopped for the time being. Um, and those figures have been consistent, and I don't think the government's... Um, I don't think there's been any difference in the progression of the government figures. What I can say is that um, uh, certainly the personnel who have been involved in it uh, have been greatly relieved by the change uh, in what they've had to do. Um, and I, in fact, had forgotten, it's interesting how quickly we forget um, the number of deaths in 2013, uh, with a number of incidents week, week after week going on in the Northwest. Uh, what I do know from my conversations with um, officers I've known since they were very young, as well as other people, is that the stresses on the crews, both naval and uh, border force uh, were extreme. Uh, the Navy, in fact, adopted a psychological support program in 2013, which had been trialling since 2011. Um, but certainly personnel were um, feeling the pressure in addition to what I mentioned earlier, which was the actual scale of the activity anyway, but were tremendously feeling the pressure about pulling bodies out of the water. Um, over which they've been able, not been able to do anything. What I would say about the search and rescue, which I think is an important thing to say, I can only speak for myself, but I can tell you that as Border Protection Commander, I never refused a request for assets from the Rescue Coordination Centre at ANSA. If they asked for assets, they were given it straight away. Um, and my belief, my personal belief, would be all my successes would have exactly the same view. If it turned into a search and rescue situation, the assets are given to the experts. Um, and by the way, search and rescue coordination is an expert craft. 
you don't do it if you can possibly avoid it unless you really know what you're doing. And it's one of the reasons why we have AMSA and the RCC and it's a separate institution. But you wouldn't have a situation where you're involved in something that is law enforcement and your constabulary I would, I would it would not straight, shift to... I would shift straight to search and rescue if I were... So yeah. if you and saw the, the vessel yes, in distress... Absolutely, it, and no question. And so what would happen after the rescue was carried out? Would you switch back to a security-related... Um, yes, you would, you would actually then move yeah. to what the government, what, what the direction from the government was. Once the people were safe on board, you would then move to what the government So, so the ship would be a, a place of safety for the purposes of the search and rescue region? that's a fair way to say how it's interpreted, mm -hmm. yes. But there's no question, and that was always my instruction to commanding officers, and I know it's, you know, I, I have no hesitation in saying that would still be instruction if there is a judgment made mm -hmm. by the person on the spot or indeed by anybody in the chain, that there is danger to human beings, mm -hmm. then you move to that. I, I guess one of the issues is that it's very difficult to make that judgment. We've seen a lot of cases where the, the call hasn't been put out because of either uh, a view that the level of distress wasn't sufficient enough, or um, perhaps they're, they're trying to gain the systems to get picked up. Uh, so, I mean, how, how, do we, how do you address a situation like that from an operational perspective? You make the decision as best you can on the information you've got. Operational decision-making mm -hmm. is always difficult. If I can be frank, lawyers are often not very good at understanding how difficult operational decisions are to make with ambiguous, uncertain and incomplete information mm -hmm. against a, you know, and you need to make them within a time. I will say my son is now an A-League official mm -hmm. who has to do off-site calls <laughs> and I'm very sympathetic to his challenges mm -hmm. and, and of course nobody's life's depending mm -hmm. upon that. Well, I sometimes wonder about that but, um, but the point is that um, you make the best call you mm -hmm. can at the time. Do people get it wrong? Yes. Have people got it wrong? Yes. Are, are, there, are there structural or political reasons why they may get it wrong sometimes? On the one hand you've got all this pressure coming from, from the government to try and avoid acting as a pull factor and going out and saving lives at sea. Yep. Um, and at the same time, you've got, uh, I'm surely that plays into your thought process when you're deciding as the AMSA officer whether to send out the boat. Now, well, AMSA will, if they've got a search and rescue, they do it, okay? Um, you're really thinking, your, your argument, I think, is that earlier stage, okay, when you're really trying to make a call. Mm. Um, can it influence? Um, I think particularly after the events of 2001, mm -hmm. Um, people are very conscious that uh, you must not let that influence you mm -hmm. uh, to the point where um, it, it might lead you to do the wrong thing. What I'd also say is, um, and I speak for my time in command, but we're also very careful to ensure only one authority is talking to the ship. Mm -hmm. When you get multiple authorities, particularly direct political ones, that's when you can get to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And an instructions commanding officer, if anybody rings you up, other than your direct operational commander, you put the phone down. Mm -hmm. um, so mm. I think people are very conscious of it. Um, and certainly in 2001, it got very, very tricky. Um, on all sides, people are now more conscious mm -hmm. of it. And to be fair, I think governments are conscious. It's a bit like police work. Mm -hmm. Government, you know, state governments do not get involved in operational decisions by, by police. Similarly, governments leave the operators mm -hmm. to get on with it. So. Is, are there pressures? Yes, but are people conscious of them? Very much so. Mm -hmm. uh, and in my view, they will try to do the right thing. Will they always get it right? Mm -hmm. No, they won't. Mm -hmm.
because they're human beings. Well, and I think part of this is is that I mean it must be extremely difficult to ensure you know that these operations are conducted safely when clearly people who are on board don't want to be intercepted, mm -hmm. and so you know this is why we have all these reports of people sabotaging boats, people threatening or or actually undertaking self harm, um, of people jumping overboard. I mean, it, you know, um, it it must be very difficult uh, operationally to ensure that a turn back operation does happen safely and, and when, you know, all we know is that um, the criterion is that it's done when it's safe to do so. Um, but, you know, how, in a, in a, in a sense, do you ensure that... You, you practice and you plan and you develop safety cases and you really work through the implications. So before, in fact, um, the turn backs were started, I'm quite sure that there was this extensive safety case evaluation. Um, so that the idea, for instance, um, of putting people into lifeboats which had been purchased for the purpose was actually gone through very carefully and the implications of that worked through. So that there's no question in my mind that safety, because the whole point of this is, you know, the major justification is to save lives because of what horrible things were going on. You know, that's really the major justification from my point of view. Um, so if you're not working it safely, then in fact you're undermining what you're trying to do. Did you want to talk to the point about the Indonesians? Sure. So there was one question um, around whether or not we know the identities of people who have been returned so that we can monitor the situation um, upon return, the answer is no, that's not on the public record. Um, that information would be available to the government, but the government has said publicly, uh, well, um, the, the commander of operations, Sovereign Borders, has said in Senate estimates, we do not monitor what happens to people after they've been returned. We don't consider that to be our role. Um, and uh, we take the assurances um, as read that we receive from <coughs> Vietnam, for example, um, and Sri Lanka. So um, what we do know is um, information that comes from media interviews where people have been able, where media have been able to um, access people who've been returned and also from civil society and lawyers um, who have spoken out on behalf of their clients or who have engaged in some kind of monitoring in country. Um, and in relation to processing times, I suppose, in a way that's, that's part of the reason why it's not recommended to undertake screening and uh, refugee status determination on a ship because, um, you know, apart from very clear, open, shut cases, um, it's very difficult to, uh, and I would say almost impossible, to ensure that uh, the the sorts of um, conditions that are needed uh, to ensure that people are not detained in terrible conditions, um, but also uh, to enable a, a thorough and, and transparent, fair process to take place, really can't be ensured at sea. Thank you. Um, perhaps one or two more questions? Okay. I'm just thinking when you say that uh, the whole purpose of the operation is saving lives, um, Surely, with a change of policy, we can save lives in other ways, even if the boats are um, You know, if you were uh, tasked to uh, rescue and monitor as far as you possibly could, 
as a professional view that if people are trying to come by boat to Australia, the distances and the conditions I've named, with the ability, particularly in the archipelago, as limited as it is, both to monitor and respond, people are going to die. And it will be in relation to the total number coming. Now, you provide me an alternative which says nobody will die at sea. Okay, I mean, I'm not, I have a view about refugees and everything else, it's different as a, as a, as a human being and an Australian about how many we should be bringing and how we should be doing it. But I'm telling you, so I really was trying to make the point, that the distances, the environmental conditions and the type of boats and the people who are on them and the numbers that will be on them some will die. It may not be the 1,200 we think is the approximate figure that we know of, which may be larger over the last few, you know, the, before this policy was introduced. It may only be 10 if, say, 250 people are trying to come every year. But people are going to die if they come by boat. It's as simple as that. Okay. Okay, briefly, quickly respond to that. I, I, I do agree with you. In, in the, in the, that people, there will always be the risk that people will die. But give, the way we were running things when the boats were coming, um, and particularly the lack of cooperation with Indonesia, uh, which led to, which was to blame for a significant number of the deaths, we could do much better in uh, pr protecting life at sea. And if we were to, to, to change policies, we could do a lot more, particularly starting with uh, uh, agreement with Indonesia that let us basically undertake search and rescue on their behalf, or fund their search and rescue capabilities, and also an agreement about where uh, asylum seekers go once they're rescued, which is stopping a lot of the rescues from happening in the first place. Um, I agree with you in part. Yeah. In practice, there'd still be people dying, but you could certainly reduce that way. I think that gets to the point that there's so much else that needs to be done yeah. outside what's happening at sea, you know, in terms of Indonesia mm -hmm. and Malaysia and everything else to deal with the challenge in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. you know, um, I always used to say as Border Protection Commander that mm -hmm. you know, I deal with symptoms. Mm -hmm. I can't cure it. Mm -hmm. um, so I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. But I will say, even if you achieved the sort yeah. of levels of cooperation yeah. you're talking about, given what I know about the distances, the limitations, mm -hmm. and everything else, uh, we could pour enormous amounts of money to support Indonesia and people would still be dying. Mm -hmm. but, but yes, it could be better, yeah. you know. But, but also, we, we, this is, you can't measure the number of people that are dying because of our policies, the number of people being set back, the number of people that aren't leaving situations where they're in, uh, in and, harm's and way. That's where you, you see, again, a personal view. I think, personally, in, 19, in 2013, the government should have said, for every thousand we reduce from last year's arrivals, mm -hmm. we'll take a thousand more refugees. It's different, you know, it, I couldn't agree with you more, mm -hmm. but it's outside, and you know, it's yes, find other solutions, find other ways, find other controls for bringing people in, for encouraging people not to go that way. Um, and you know, all sorts of clever things have in fact, I believe, been done to help 
reduce. But at sea, if I can avoid them coming by mm -hmm. boat, I'm a lot happier. Mm -hmm. I think we'll all be in agreement on that point. Yeah. Okay. All right, we best take our last question. Yeah, my question is about um, the legal accountability for reformal. Um, if, for instance, someone who was <coughs> taken by Australia back to Vietnam or Sri Lanka or to uh, by the United States to Haiti, or I'm not, not aware that it's happening in the EU, but if an EU state sent someone back to Syria or um, back to their country of origin, and they were able to escape again and wish to take some sort of seek some sort of uh, legal remedy, um, would there be anything in Australian, US, EU or international law that someone who has been, believes have been subject to reform on the next one take it's very much time to Vila, do you want to start from the European Swift Yeah, case? so uh, in, in Europe there was actually a successful challenge uh, the plenary of the court of the Strasbourg Court, the European Court on Human Rights, ruled in 2012 in the Hearsay versus Italy judgment that actually um, what the Italian naval units had been doing at sea amounted to refulmo. And people were returned back to Libya at that point, had been um, returned via a readmission uh, arrangement between Italy and Gaddafi at the point at that time. Uh, and there was no real obstacle beside the fact that people had to be identified and identifiable, and that was thanks to UNHCR. Uh, local office still opened at the time in Libya. Uh, once they were identified and they were um, capable of providing powers of attorney, they were um, capable of acting before the court and eventually that was considered to be against a number of protections including Rofulmo and uh, they considered that it amounted to collective expulsion because there was no consideration of individual circumstances in the manner in which the expulsion had taken place. So I think that would be extrapolable to what should occur in, in other regions of the world, because there are similar uh, parallel provisions to that yeah. in that regard. Yeah, so in, uh, in the US, in that same case I mentioned earlier, that the, 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 the sale case of the, um, the Haitians were interdicted, uh, they, uh, I'm, I'm not intimately familiar with the case, but I know they have, have run a challenge in the Inter-American um, Court of Human Rights, and uh, they, uh, and the court sided with them. That then they found that they had been uh, expelled or returned contrary to the non-reform obligations under the um, uh, Charter of Inter-American um, Human Rights. Uh, the news, bad news, is that uh, for us in Australia, we don't have a comparable uh, regional human rights framework where we can seek a remedy of this sort. Uh, and this is one of the big, one of the gaps in the uh, in the uh, international refugee convention uh, that uh, only states uh, can make complaints against other states. As an individual, you don't have a right to make a complaint under the, the refugee convention. Uh, can I can I just say something? Because I mean, you did have the judgment from the High Court of Australia in the swap case against yeah. Malaysia, yeah. and that was considered to be contrary to Norho Fulmo. Yeah, but it was based and purely... And then the government changed yeah. the policy. That was purely based on our domestic um, 
legislation and the government just changes domestic legislation. It happened to refer to the number of in the legislation. Okay. We don't refer to it anymore. So, But then you have the CAP committee having condemned Australia on a number of occasions. Not, so. the, uh, no, I, I don't believe on this issue, but you, that is true. You, you could, uh, if you'd return to somewhere where you're subject to torture under the CAP convention, um, you could have a remedy there. So there's op optional protocols. Certain the human rights committees have treaties have optional protocols that allow for uh, individuals to, to bring complaints against governments. Uh, the Refugee Convention doesn't have one, but the other human rights treaties do. Just briefly to add, I know that we're out of time, but uh, I know we often and very rightly focus on the question of whether there's an enforceable remedy when there's a breach of international law in this way. But can I also just say that it's an important point to um, continue to press that um, you know non-reformal shouldn't be up for grabs. It's the cornerstone of, of international refugee protection. And unless Australia thinks that it can unilaterally um, you know, resolve refugee issues, we have to embrace a cooperative approach. And if we want to take a cooperative approach to uh, you know, addressing refugee flows at a time when those are at the highest recorded level since World War II, then we have to respect the principle of non-reformant. Because if we don't, we will have no political capital to encourage other states to work with us to actually come up with pragmatic solutions. So um, in a sense, it's, it's not only a question of whether it can be enforced, but it's also um, a key element of any sort of pragmatic response um, to, to this complex uh, policy area. All right, thank you all very much. Um, I'm sure you all have a very strong sense of the enormous complexities from both legal perspective, policy perspectives, the, the operational side, and just an extraordinarily real human element uh, of these, these particular issues. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of food for thought. And I know there's, there's still so many unanswered questions um, that we need to work through and try and find resolution on. Uh, in bringing our uh, session this evening to a close, uh, I do want to thank Alan's particularly for providing us with the venue to be able to host uh, the event this evening, and particularly thank Laura Barakua at Alan's who helped so much with the coordination. We're grateful to have had the venue to be able to welcome you to, to be able to discuss these issues. Uh, thanks to uh, Daniel and to Francis for their efforts in organising this evening, and also particularly thanks uh, to Kelly Newell at the Caldor Centre as well for her efforts in organising uh, the evening. And if I can otherwise just ask all of you to join with me in thanking our panellists in the customary manner for their <laughs>